Part nine of Biltmore Oswald The Diary of a Hapless Recruit by J. Thorne Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Boydell. Part nine. August fifth. In order to distract Mr. Fogerty's attention from his love affair, and in a sort of desperate endeavour to win him back to me, I took him away on my last liberty with me. Fogerty doesn't come under the heading of a lapdog, but through some technical quibble I managed to smuggle him into the subway. All he did there was to knock over one elderly lady and lick her face effusively when he'd gotten her down. This resulted in a small but complete panic. For the most part, however, he sat quietly on my lap and sniffed at those around him. At last we reached Washington Square, whereupon I proceeded to take Mr. Fogerty around and show him off to my friends. He was well received, but his heart wasn't with us. It was far away in City Island. At one restaurant we ran into a female whose hair was nearly as short as Fogerty's. She was holding forth on the silence of the soul versus the love impulse, the cabbage, or some other plant. Fogerty listened to her for a while and then bit her. He did it quietly, but I thought it best to take him away. After supper we went up to another place for coffee. A fine little place for sailormen, situated on the south side of the square. Here we were received with winning cordiality and Fogerty was given a fried egg a dish of which he is passionately fond. But even here he got into trouble by putting one of his great feet through a ukulele, which isn't such a terrible thing to do, except in certain places. Getting back to the station was a crisp little affair. Fogerty and myself rose at five and went forth to the shuttle. The subway was a madhouse. We shuttled ourselves to death. At 5.30... We were at the Times Square end of the shuttle. At 5.45 we were at Williams. At 6 o'clock we had somehow managed to get ourselves on the east side end of the shuttle. Five minutes later we were back at Times Square. Ten minutes later we were over on the east side once more. At 6.15 I lost Fogerty. At 6.25 I was back at Times Square. Hello, buddy, said the guard. You back again. Here's your dog. At 7 o'clock... We were at Van Cortland Park. At eight, we were at 96th Street. Nine o'clock found us labouring up to the gate of the camp with a written list of excuses that looked like the schedule of a flourishing railroad. It was accepted, much to our surprise. August 7th. I have a perfectly splendid idea. Of course, like the rest of my ideas, it won't work but it is a perfectly splendid idea for all that. I got it while travelling on the ferry boat from New York to Staten Island, the longest sea journey I have had since I joined the Navy. On this trip, strangely thrilling to a sailor in my situation, but which was suffered with bored indifference by the amphibious commuters that infest the island in those waters, I saw a number of ships so gaudily and at the same time so carelessly painted that any God-fearing skipper of the Spanish main would positively have refused to command. Captain Kidd himself would have blushed at the very sight of this ribald fleet and turned away with a devout imprecation. This was my first experience with camouflage, 
and it impressed me most unfavourably. An ordinary ship on a grumbling ocean is difficult enough as it is to establish friendly relations with, but when trigged out in this manner, why serve meals at all, say I? Nevertheless, it occurred to me that it would not be a bad idea at all to camouflage one's hammock in such a manner that it took upon itself the texture and appearance of the bulkhead of the barracks in which it swung. In this manner, a sailor could sleep undisturbed for three weeks if he so desired, and he does, without ever being technically considered a deserter. One could elaborate this idea still further and make one's sea bag look like a clump of poison ivy, so that no inspecting officer would ever care to become intimate with its numerous defects in cleanliness. One might even go so far as to camouflage oneself into a writing desk, so that when visiting the Y or the KC, and unexpectedly required to sing, one would not be forced to rise and scream impatiently and threateningly, Dear Mother of Mine, or Break the News to Mother. Not that these songs are not things of rare beauty in themselves, but after a couple of days on the coal pile, one's lungs have been sufficiently exercised to warrant relief. This is merely an idea of mine, and now that everybody knows about it, I guess there isn't much use in going ahead with it. August 8th This guide is left, shouted the P.O., and naturally I looked around to see what had become of the poor fellow. Keep your eyes straight, eyes to the front, don't move, what are you looking at? I was looking for the guide that was left, said I timidly. It seems to me that he's always being left. Company dismissed, said the P.O. promptly, showing a wonderful command of the situation under rather trying circumstances, for the boo-hoo that went up from the men after my remark defied all restraints of discipline. Say, Biltmore, says the P.O. to me a moment later, I'm going to see if I can't get you shipped to Siberia if you pull one of them bum jokes again. You understand? But I wasn't joking, I replied innocently. Oh, go on, you sly dog, said he, nudging me in the ribs, and for some strange reason he departed in high good humour, leaving me in a greatly mystified frame of mind. Speaking of getting shipped, I've just written a very sad song in the style of the old sentimental ballads of the Spanish war days. It's called The Sailor's Farewell, and I think Polly will like it. I haven't polished it up yet, but here it is, as it is. A sailor to his mother came and said, Oh, mother dear, I got to go away and fight the war. So, mother, don't you cry too hard and don't you have no fear when you find the time not sticking round no more. My boy, the sweet old lady said, I hate to see you go. I've known you since when you was but a kid. But if the question you should ask, I'll ask the whole world so. It's the only decent thing you ever did. A tear she brushed aside, and then she sadly cried. I'm proud my boy's a sailor, man will sails upon the sea. I've always liked him pretty well, although he is so dumb. For years he stuck around the house and disappointed me. I thought that he was going to be a bum. He took her gently by the hand and kissed her on the bean and said, when I'm about to fight the Hun, you shouldn't talk to me that way. I think it's awfully mean. I ain't a going to have a lot of fun. I know my child, the mother said, the parting makes me sad, 
But go you must away and fight the war. At least you will not live to drink as much as did your dad. So here's the lid, my lad, and there's the door. Then as he turned away, he heard her softly say, The sailors I have ever loved, I'm glad my lad's a gob, Although it seems to me he's much too dumb. But after all, perhaps he isn't such an awful slob, I always knew the Kaiser was a bum. August 9th The best way to make a deserter of a man is to give him too much liberty. For the past week I have been getting my dog Fogerty on the numerous liberty lists when he shouldn't have been there, but not contented with that he is taken to going around with a couple of yeomen and the first thing I know he will be getting on a special detail where the liberty is soft. I put nothing past that dog since he lost his head to some flop-eared hussy with a black and tan reputation. August 10th all day long and a little longer i've been carrying sacks of flour the next time i see a stalk of wheat i'm going to snarl at it this new occupation is a sort of special penance for not having my hammock lashed in time it seems that i have been in the service long enough to know how to do the thing right by now but the seventh itch is a sly little devil and always gets me i need a longer line or a shorter hammock but the only way out of it that I can see is to get a commission and rate a bed. I carried all the flour today that was raised last year in the southern section of the state of Montana, and I was carrying it well and cheerfully until one of my pet fingernails, the one that the manicure girls in Biltmore used to rave about, thrust itself through the sack and precipitated its contents upon myself and the floor. A commissary steward, when thoroughly aroused, is a poisonous member of society. One would have thought that I had sunk the great fleet the way this bird went on about one little sack of flour. Here, Mr. Hoover works hard night and day all winter, he sobs at me, and you go spreading it around as if you were Marie Antoinette. I wondered what new scandal he had about Marie Antoinette, but I held my peace. My horror was so great that the real colour of my face made the flour look like a coat of sunburn in comparison. There's enough flour there, he continued reproachfully, pointing to the huge mound of stuff in which I stood like a lost explorer on a snow-capped mountain peak and wishing heartily that I was one. There's enough flour, he continued, to keep a chief petty officer in pie for twenty-four hours. Oh, just about, I thought to myself. Well, he cried irritably, pick it up, be quick, pick it up, all of it. Pick it up, I replied through a cloud of mist. You can't pick up flour. You can pick up apples and pears and cabbages and cigar butts, for that matter, but you can't pick up flour. The commissary steward suddenly handed me a piece of paper upon which he had been writing frantically. Take this to your P.O., he said shrilly, and take yourself along with it. A defect in the sack. I gasped, departing. And there's a defect in you, he shouted after me. Your brain is exempt. Take this man and kill him if you can find any slight technical excuse for it, the note ran. And if you can't kill him, give him an inaptitude discharge with my compliments. And if you are unable to do either of these two things, at least keep him away from my outfit. We don't want to see his silly face around here any more at all. 
The P.O. read it to me with great delight. "'I guess we'll have to send you to Siberia after all,' he said thoughtfully. "'Only that country is in far too delicate a condition for you to meddle with it at present. "'Go away to somewhere where I can't see you,' he continued bitterly, "'for I feel inclined to do you an injury, something permanent and serious.' "'I went right away.' August 11th Mother has just paid one of her belligerent visits to the camp, and as a consequence I am on the point of having a flock of brainstorms. Some misguided person has been telling her about the officer training school up here, and she arrived fired with the ambition to enter me in that institution without further delay. True to form, she bounded headlong into the matter without consulting my feelings by accosting the very first commissioned officer she met. He happened to be an ensign, but he might as well have been a vice-admiral, for all mother cared. "'Tell me, young man,' she said to this ensign, going directly to the point, "'do you see any reason why my boy Oswald should not go to that place where they make all the ensigns?' "'Yes,' said the officer firmly. "'I do.' "'Oh, you do?' snapped mother angrily. "'And pray tell me what that reason might be.' "'Your son Oswald,' replied the ensign laconically. "'What?' exclaimed mother. "'You mean to say that my Oswald is not good enough to go to your silly old school?' "'No,' replied the ensign, weakening pitifully before the withering fury of an aroused mother. "'But you see, my dear madam, he has not a first-class rating.' "'Fiddlesticks,' said mother. "'Crossed anchors,' replied the ensign. "'I didn't mean that,' continued mother. "'I think the whole thing is very mysterious and silly, "'and I'm not going to let it stop here.' "'You can trust me, Oswald,' she went on soothingly. "'I'm going to see the commander of the station myself. "'I'm going this very instant.' "'But, mother!' I cried in desperation, "'tossing all consequences to the wind. "'The skipper isn't on the station today. "'He's got a forty-three-hour liberty. "'I saw him check out of the gate myself.' "'For a moment the ensign's jaw dropped. "'I watched him anxiously.' Then, with perfect composure, he turned to Mother and came through like a little gentleman. "'Yes, madam,' he stated. "'Your son is right. I heard his name read out with the Liberty Party only a moment ago. He has shoved off by now. I could have kissed that ensign.' "'Well, I'm sure,' said Mother. "'It's very funny that I can never get to the captain. I shall write him, however.' "'He must have an interesting collection of your letters already,' I suggested." They would be interesting to publish in book form. Anyway, continued Mother, apparently not attending to my remark, I think you would look just as well as this young man in one of those nice white suits. No doubt, madam, replied the ensign propitiatingly. No doubt. Come, Mother, said I, let's go to the YMCA. I need something cool to steady my nerves. How about your underwear? said Mother, coming back to her mania in a voice that invited all within earshot who were interested in my underwear to draw nigh and attend. "'Here, eat this ice cream,' I put in quickly, almost feeding her. "'It's melting!' But Mother was not to be decoyed away from her favourite topic. "'I must look it over,' she continued firmly. It seemed to me that every eye in the room was calmly penetrating my whites and carefully looking over my underwear in which Mother took such an exaggerated interest. "'Socks!' suddenly exploded Mother. "'Are you off for socks?' 
Splendidly, I said in a hoarse voice. A girl behind me snickered. And have you that liniment to rub on your stomach when you have cramps? She went on ruggedly. Enough to last through the fall season, I replied in a moody voice. I didn't tell her that Tim the barkeep had tried to drink it. Polly! suddenly exclaimed Mother. Polly! Why, I forgot to tell you that she would be up this afternoon. She must be here by now. The world swam around me. Polly was my favourite sweetie. Oh, Mother! I cried reproachfully. How could you have forgotten? At that moment I heard a familiar voice issuing from the corner and turned around. I caught sight of the staff reporter of the camp paper, a notoriously unscrupulous sailor with predatory proclivities. He had gotten Polly in a corner and was chinning the ear off her. As I drew near, I heard him saying, Really, it's an awful pity, but I distinctly remember him saying that he was going away on liberty today. He mentioned some girl's name but it didn't sound anything at all like yours. Polly looked at him trustfully. Are you sure, mister? Savonrola, the lying wretch supplied without turning a hair. Are you sure, mister Savonrola, that she has left the station? Saw him check out with my own eyes, he said calmly. I moved nearer, my hands twitching. Now with an honest old seafaring man like myself, he continued in a confidential voice, it's different. Why, if I should wear all the ash marks I rate, I'd look like a zebra. So I just don't wear any. You know how it is. But when I like a girl, I stick to her. Now from the very moment I laid eyes on you, human endurance could stand no more. I threw myself between them. Why, here's Oswald himself, exclaimed the reporter with masterful feigned surprise. However did you get back so soon? I have never been away anywhere to get back from, and you know it, I replied coldly. Strange, he said. I could have sworn that I saw you checking out. Can I get you some ice cream? he added smoothly. What on? I replied bitterly, knowing him always to be broke. Your mother must have. Come, said I to Polly, leave this degraded creature to ply his pernicious trade alone. I have some very important words to say to you. Goodbye, Mr. Savonrola, said Polly. Until we meet again, answered the reporter with the utmost confidence. August 12th. It's all arranged. Those words I had to say to Polly were not spoken in vain. She has promised to be my permanent sweetie. Of course, I have had a couple of transit sweeties in the past, but now I am going to settle down to one steady, day in and day out sweetie i told tim the barkeep about it last night and all he said was what about all those parties we'd planned after you were paid off this sort of set me back for a moment the spell of polly's eyes had made me forget all about tim well tim i replied i'll have to think about that come on over to the canteen and i'll feed you some of those honest upstanding sandwiches they have over there Say, says Tim, the carnal beast, forgetting everything at the prospect of food, I feel as if I could cover a flock of them without trying. So together, Tim and I had a bachelor's dinner over the sandwiches, which were worthy of that auspicious occasion. End of part nine.